And now, it's time once again for the show that gives glorious voice to 25 million business owners across the fruited plain. Radio Free Enterprise with Frank Felker. Thank you, Dude Walker. Yes, indeed. I am Frank Felker. Welcome back to Radio Free Enterprise. My guest today is Sage Baker. Sage is a qualitative market researcher based in Austin, Texas. Sage, welcome to Radio Free Enterprise. Thanks for having me, Frank. We're going to talk about something very important today, which is market research. And you probably are not aware, Sage, but regular viewers and listeners to Radio Free Enterprise know that I try to speak to both big business owners, little business owners, you name it, uh, to the challenges that they have in common. And one of them is understanding their marketplace. And part of that is almost nobody wants to do the uh, market research that they should do. So I want to start by laying a foundation with you of just, can you just give us an idea why, what makes market research important? Well, it gives you an understanding of the world in which you're operating uh, with your competitors your constituents, your consumers, your whatever, the people that are buying your product or service, whether they are uh, people in the world or other businesses, but really it can give you an understanding of where your strengths are, uh, what your positioning in the marketplace needs to be, how your consumers or constituents are experiencing your brand, your product, your services. So it's hard for me to imagine not wanting to be curious about the marketplace. Well, sometimes I think, I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't want to know what people think about my brand or my product or my service because goodness sakes knows uh, so many things could go wrong if I ask somebody. But uh, we will come back to how to ask and what to ask and all that kind of jazz in a minute. Okay, uh, sorry for the, for the little levity there, but I, I always put myself in the seat of the business owner or the person watching. Um, now, most people, there's the opposite or the complement to qualitative market research, which is what you do, is quantitative market research, which I think is what most people think of when they think of market research. Can you tell us what your definition of quantitative market research is? So the, I would say the simplified version, which certainly isn't the dumbed down version, is um, quantitative is usually represented by the numbers what we'll see surveys a survey says x number of people you know x y and z so it, it is usually represented by numbers done by asking people questions in in surveys um, qualitative on the other hand is conversations with people so quantitative the numbers can give you the what what's happening qualitative talking with other human beings with people uh, we'll give you the why. So often there's a really powerful thing that happens when you put the two together. So I don't think that one is better than the other. Uh, they're just different. I see. Now, uh, they do complement each other. Is, would you say that maybe if somebody had the budget and they were going to do both quantitative and qualitative, should they do the quantitative first? Or is there a, a pat rule about that? That's such a great question. And I probably work with my, I mean, I, I don't know that there's a week that goes by that we aren't having this conversation mm. of what type of research serves the purpose best. What are our objectives? Um, and often 
I will come back to them and say, you know, you really need to do some quantitative first because the qualitative will be more powerful after we do that. We've also designed it the other way where we need to do some qualitative first so that we can design really powerful quantitative. So it really goes back to what do we need to know? What are our objectives? And we sort that out accordingly. Well, and, you know, that uh, begs the question, what do we need to know, Sage? What is it that we need to know about uh, our product, our service, our brand, how people are interacting with us? I guess as I'm asking these series of questions, it sounds as though there's almost an unlimited number of things that we need to know. What are some important things? Well, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm with you. The list is endless. Um, I think I also think of it often as, you know, kind of the nesting doll. Um, mm. I don't want to call it a symbol, but the nesting doll is, or, you know, when you and I have talked before, peeling the onion, um, when, you, when you think about one question, it leads to two or three other questions. And I think that is important. So I don't know that there's a question that would be, you know, out of, out of bounds. It's, it can be about how a customer experiences your brand at retail, at a point of sale. Um, is there a disconnect there? Are there things that that brand is doing that really reinforce brand experience or brand love? Uh, is there a problem with a particular product that we need to find out? Um, so I'm, I guess when you ask that question, it's like, oh, there's so many questions. That was what we could call in the business an unfair question. Oh, I don't know about that. It just it got me to thinking. I'm like, oh gosh, I could go on on that forever. Yeah. Well, you know what I think would really help is if we could go to an example. You mentioned just a moment ago, point of sale, and uh, I won't ask you to name any names if you don't want to, but I will put you on the spot by saying you told me a story earlier about a company uh, that's in the food service business that had a question and uh, you were able to help ferret out the answer using qualitative research. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was, uh, this is one of my favorite stories because in some ways when we discovered what was happening, uh, it was a little bit of a, well, I'm gonna date myself a V8 moment. Like, oh, well, of course, why, you know, that's interesting. So this is actually a good example of where quantitative and qualitative were used together. So quantitative data from this particular client was saying, we're not selling um, these what we think are these amazing breakfast sandwiches. Why is that so? Um, but they couldn't tell that from the data. So myself and some partners were engaged to speak with customers, <clears throat> to have them go into these stores, these retail locations, and report back to us via, um, I believe we did focus groups uh, pre-COVID, and this was many years ago. And what we discovered in their sharing back to us about their experience of being in this retail location was that the food was not presented in an appetizing way. And what this client ended up doing was completely rethinking how their breakfast foods were displayed at the case. So as you are standing at the counter ordering your beverage of choice, the way these breakfast items and other pastries are displayed was changed by this research. Um, I think I'll leave the client um, okay. undisclosed, but 
that's what customers were able to tell us is I don't want to buy that sandwich because it doesn't look appetizing. doesn't look like something I'd like to eat. You know, the other thing, Frank, that because I was thinking about this story, the other aspect to this was this customer or this client's business was changing rapidly and they were adding drive throughs hmm. So the other thing that was layered onto this were customers who used to come into the store to get their beverage of choice um, were now driving through. So they were missing any kind of visual about these pastry and pastry oh. products and, and breakfast items. So you also had this situation of literally a change in the way their customers were experiencing the brand, not just the product. You know, it's funny. And uh, McDonald's was not your client. Uh, but I've noticed because I'm, you know, Johnny Digital, that uh, even, even, of course, not that I ever patronized McDonald's. But um, their digital signage is amazing. There's like steam coming off of the food. And it's like the uh, uh, food photography, product photography, taken to the ultimate level. And I'm sure it does influence people's uh, purchasing decisions. Absolutely. Nobody wants to eat anything that doesn't look appetizing. Yeah. So the art of display, whether it's digital or you know, in a, in a pastry case, when you're standing there at point of sale is really important. Well, let's talk about different ways that qualitative research is done, how it actually looks when the rubber meets the road. You mentioned uh, focus groups. And I, throughout my career at various points, probably you know, once every 10 years or something like that, have been a part of an industry focus group. This was uh, early on, it was in the uh, printing industry and, and this was all B2B. But um, tell us, what, how do you gather a focus group? Um, what I'm driving at here is if somebody's watching and thinking that they might want to do some qualitative research for their company, what are the challenges and what are some best practices when pulling together a focus group? Well, I would say, you know, there's probably 20 sitcoms that we could refer to where focus groups have been much maligned. <laughs> and, and, and they, you know, I mean, they can be a topic of, of of great funniness and mockery. Here's, this is what I've come to in my, it comes down to my recruiting partners. So really having uh, recruiters who can find the people that I want to talk to, whether it's a focus group conversation, um, whether it's a shop along, whether, you know, pre-COVID times, I would might go into people's homes. I might shop with them. I might run errands with them. I mean, you name it, I've done it. And I can't say enough for how important it is to have really wonderful recruiting partners who are willing to not only maintain a database of respondents who are qualified, engaged, but who are willing to make use of all the different resources now for which we can, we can find people who, who aren't professional respondents. I mean, you know, that's been a concern in the industry for a very long time, and rightly so. But with all the things at our fingertips now and ways in which we can connect with people and, and find people in their levels of interest, recruiting right. is the key. So are you saying that there are companies that specialize in recruiting individuals to be brought to qualitative researchers like yourself? Correct. So that's what I, I rely on those recruiting partners. Um, I mean, I, without going into you know specific detail about how projects are put together, which would probably not be 
very exciting for people to understand. <laughs> That's podcast number two. But, okay. Um, yeah, I, I have to rely on those partners to bring into the conversation the very people that I want to talk to. And if you, we all know this in business, if you don't have great partners that you trust, that you've developed long relationships with, you know, my, my work isn't very good. So, you know, something just occurred to me, Sage, and I think this is a critical element for people to consider, which is having a third party do the interviews, do the focus groups. In other words, if I run a printing business and I gather all my clients together for a dinner and then I ask them, you know, so how am I doing? I'm likely not to get the information that I really need. They're probably going to tell me what I think I want to hear. Would you say that's a critical aspect? Absolutely. And when I start conversations, when I'm doing, when I'm actually doing the field work, that's the way I I set up the conversation I might be having with somebody, which is I'm a neutral third party. Um, I don't, I'm not emotionally invested or married to a specific outcome. And that I invite them to be honest and open with me. And it really is about ideas, opinions, preferences. Um, it's really hard for somebody who is invested in a certain product or service to have an unattached conversation. Um, and I get to play, I say, passionate investigative reporter. Ha, I like that. <laughs> now, you mentioned uh, shop along. And again, I guess that's uh, primarily pre-COVID or let's hope post-COVID as well. How does that look? Are you going into your client's store or are you going along with the person just to judge their shopping ha- habits in general? What? How does that work and what are you looking for? I'll give you an example from a recent study. And this was pre-COVID and this one was absolutely one of the funnest things I've worked on where it doesn't ever feel like work Mm. um, for a beer brand. And we did, I mean, we went into grocery stores with people just to ask them what they were noticing on the beer aisle in terms of packaging, just what, what design was interesting to them? What did they notice? What are they looking for? We bought beer. Then we went back to their house I did not have any because I was on the clock, um, mm. but but really just being in the aisle with them and having them narrate what, as I say to them, whatever th- whatever voice in your head you're thinking about, um, mm. I want you to articulate that for me. Bring it bring it out externally, and what I've found is that if you are open and you come to it with a sense of curiosity and fun and energy, people do open up to you and, and they know that it's research, but they, they are given an opportunity to really share, as I said, that voice in their head, which is, I hate orange. I don't like that label. Here's why, (laughs) you know? um, So I don't know if that's helpful to understand the shop along part. Well, you know, what it makes me think of is that um, because you're asking open-ended questions and, asking them to tell you whatever's on the top of their mind. Does it ever feel like you're just either getting too much information or random bits of information that how do you collate and correlate this data that you're gathering? How do you, how do you put it to work? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. Cause now you're asking me to externalize my own process. <laughs> well, just let me, let me just cut that in half and just yeah. ask, how do you know what's BS or what's important? How do you separate the wheat from the chaff? 
some of it is just a certain amount of experience in the field that you just have a have a gut sense of of when people are being authentic and and real you know when to ask a follow-up question the other part is you try to do enough interviews that you can recognize patterns mm. recognize themes that might might be occurring and so that's always a balance right of how how many interviews how many focus groups how many shop alongs can you do with the resources at hand which as i always say are time and money so that you can decipher is this something i would continue to hear or is this a is this a one-off um mm. I, I would say a lot of it is just hard one experience in in the field of being with lots of other people um and i i don't know do you get that sense though frank when you're talking to people if somebody is like okay that really feels true well yeah so i mean you can definitely tell if somebody's being genuine or not um, but I guess what I'm saying is like you mentioned the orange label and, uh, and it's funny because, and you so were talking about beer. And so my mind immediately went to something called orange smash, which is a new kind of cider in a can, uh, that's very popular among uh, my group of friends. And, uh, and so, and I was thinking, well, you know, they used a very soft color of oranges, more of a pastel. It doesn't really slap you across the face. And I'm just thinking at one point, you know, because I come from the printing industry and the graphic arts. At what point do you like, oh, I got to tweak that orange? You know, I just it just makes me wonder, where's the meat? You know, remember the old uh, commercial um, that that you can really. Well, let's talk about that then. What are yeah. some examples of important insights or inferences that you've been able to draw mm -hmm. for a client? Wow, that's a that's a big question. Um, I. I think one of the things that you're you're asking about is there's a fine line between going out into the world and literally letting 10 consumers tell you what to do. Okay. So you could take something like that on face value, which is they hate orange. You could also see that within the context of all the other questions that you asked and all the other conversations you had with people, which might be something like, orange is really noticed in the beer case because everyone else is blue and silver. Oh, that's great. So just, because, just because someone says, ooh, that orange, I don't know about that. What might also be a dimension of that is they noticed it and it made them look twice. So it's, it's a little more nuanced than that. And I think that is where, when you have the great fortune and ability to have enough of those qualitative conversations to understand that there might be um, a, a, another side to that coin. And that's where I think the experience comes in. And then and working with the client team, because what if they say, I mean, McDonald's is not going to get rid of yellow arches. Right. But yellow is not everybody's color. Okay, well, they've put some equity into that. So I don't know if, if that's a that's an iconic brand example. But in, in the orange and the beer case, that's how I would interpret that. Well, that was great. Your, the perspective you gave on that was perfect uh, because, it yeah, it, they noticed it. That's an important insight. People noticed the color in the beer case, and particularly this one because it's different. 
And so that's exactly what I was uh, searching for. And I appreciate you sharing that. Now, let's say that somebody who's watching or listening is thinking, yeah, you know how to do some of this uh, myself. Any sort of just general, uh, again, we, we made it clear, you can't do it yourself. You've got to uh, either bring in a professional or certainly a third party who's going to interact with your clients or your prospective clients. But outside of that, what, I mean, what would be the best first step for somebody to do? Would it be planning ahead of time, deciding what, you know, you tell me, what, what, where should they start? Well, I'll even back up one. You know, I have a, a lot of clients. One of the things that I love about working for myself is I, I can take on lots of different projects and work with lots of different types of clients and teams. And, and that kind of variety really fuels me and engages me. It also keeps me on my, on my toes because not every client has a big budget. And there are times where clients come to me and say, Sage, we know we can't afford to have you and your team work on this. Could you, could you educate us if we had to do some of our own research? Mm -hmm. How can we do that? How can we do that effectively? Can you spend some time with us in terms of moderation? How should we set up that research? <clears throat> and I love those types of questions because the truth is not everybody has big budgets and can do everything externally. Is that ideal? Absolutely. But um, so I just come back to let's get clear on what the objectives are. What are you trying to do? What do you need to know? What are your resources at hand? Again, time, money, manpower. Let's design something. It may not be the perfect research, but it could be the best research that you can do with those resources at hand. And I would say any project, big or small, clarity and alignment in terms of objectives is absolutely key. It seems silly and maybe assumptive, but you got to go back to the basics. So with that in mind and understanding that everybody has different objectives and different budget and so forth, let's say somebody watching or listening is thinking, hey, that sage seems to know what she's talking about and maybe she could help us. What's the best way for them to connect with you? Well, obviously, I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, I'm the only, as far as I know, sagebakerconsulting.com. Um, I have to laugh because when I, when I left the agency I was working for in 2007, I had this moment of, oh, I've got to buy a domain name. What do, what do I call myself? And I just, I just picked sagebakerconsulting.com on a bit of a whim and thought, I'll get to all that branding stuff later, which the irony of that coming out of branding uh, makes me makes me laugh. Right. And so sagebakerconsulting.com, sage at sagebakerconsulting. It's a little long, but it's pretty straightforward. And it may well be that LinkedIn's the easiest way. Send you a little LinkedIn message. And if someone were to reach out to you, what happens next? Uh, what do you need to know from them? What, uh, what sort of initial discovery call do you have? That's exactly what I do is that let's set up a call. Let, let me understand from your point of view, what, what are the, as I say, what are the head scratchers? What are the things that are, you know, keeping you up at night? Tell me what those questions are. Often I'll find that I, I would say client partners sometimes feel like they have to have a certain amount of clarity before they come and talk to me. I don't necessarily believe that to be true because often in our conversations 
that clarity will come or I'll have questions for them. And sometimes we find out that they're really not at a place where, where they need me. I mean, maybe they need to go do quantitative first. And I certainly say, you know, it sounds like where you are, this is the type of research that best serves you. That's not in my wheelhouse. Um, here's a partner that can help you. So it really does just start with the conversation um, so that we can get clear. And again, I might pose questions back to them that will help clarify things on their side. And do you, uh, is this at charge or initial discovery calls complimentary? How do you work that? I'm, I'm always willing to talk to potential clients. That's I think great. what, it, well, I mean, one of the things that excites me is that one, I think it's a gut check of, do we have good chemistry together? Because mm-hmm. that's just as important as whether or not somebody meets your quote unquote skill set. Do we, are, are we, are we paired well? Um, and I think that's a good question for potential clients to ask themselves as well. I mean, they have to have partners that, that they feel aligned with and there is that chemistry. Um, so now I always, the discovery call is always wonderful. And as I've said, if it turns out that we're not a good fit and they need something other than what I provide, there's tremendous satisfaction for me in helping connect them to a potential partner that can help them. So if I'm not the quote unquote end all be all, which I don't necessarily have to be, I really try to connect them to a partner who can help them. And I know you truly believe that Sage and it's one of the things I really enjoy about you is you are uh, sort of the epitome of what a previous guest of mine, Bob Berg has written a book called The Go-Giver. And you're like, hey, how can I help you? And uh, obviously, you can help in a lot of ways. Now, we're just about out of time, but I always like to close by asking my guest, is there a question that I haven't asked you or something that's come to mind that you wanted to share before we sign off? Well, that's a great question. Um, I'm so glad you didn't ask me what I want to be when I grow up. Because I don't want to grow up. Um, no, I, I mean, I really can't think of anything. Mine would just be questions for you because I'm so curious about uh, how you've come to do. And, but I'm not going to turn the tables on you. That's not really Okay. Fair. Well, we'll do that on the, the Sage Baker podcast at some point in the future. <laughs> right. And uh, that's at least until uh, you turn into that law firm. Um, it just, it's so funny. When I first saw your name, I thought it was two last names. And I thought it was a law firm. <laughs> Clearly, you're not a law firm. And, uh, you know what's, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to go to law school. That was what I wanted to do with my English major. Um, and I deferred my acceptance to law school and took a total left turn into creative writing. Um, and, hmm. and then the only, I say the only people that would hire me were, was an ad agency who thought that going to get an MFA in poetry was, was worthwhile. So uh, hmm, I say thank, thank you, thank you, Duff Stewart and GSDNM for seeing value value in that. But I, there's always this part of me that I think I might be the 80 year old who just decides to go to law school. I have no desire to practice law, but law school, yeah. Sage Baker, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Frank. It was really fun. Thanks again to Sage, and thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Frank Felker saying I'll see you on the radio. 
forgiving your entrepreneurial sins with a gentle wave of his microphone, here's Frank Filker. 